собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И привидели их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you would like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. The art collective known as the Meat Key emerged in the Leningrad underground art scene in the 1980s Soviet Union. A loose collective coalesced around the artist mascot Dmitry Shagin, the Meat Key mashed together poetry, visual arts, performance art, and music to produce a powerful aesthetic of protest that not only represented the artistic wellspring of underground culture in the Soviet 1980s and the post-Soviet 1990s, but an aesthetic that still influences Russian protest art and action today. So what were and what was the Mitki Art Collective, and how should we understand their art? For some insight, I turned to Alexander Mikhailovich to talk about his new book, The Mitki and the Art of Postmodern Protest in Russia. Alexander Mikhailovich is a professor emeritus of competitive literature and Russian at Hofstra University and visiting professor of Slavic studies at Brown University. His books include Corporeal Worlds, Mikhail Bakhtin's Theology of Discourse, the edited volume Tchaikovsky and His Contemporaries, a Centenary Symposium, and a co-edited book titled Navid Kermani, Contemporary German Writers. His new book is Namitki, The Art of Postmodern Protest in Russia, published by University of Wisconsin Press. Here's Alexander Mikhailovich. So your book, The Meat Key and the Art of Postmodern Protest, looks at how this late Soviet art collective, The Meat Key, pioneered political protest art. So I, I and you have a pretty interesting story of how you got into this topic. So I thought we'd start by just asking you, like, what drew you to write about The Meat Key? I've always been interested in kind of the uh, synesthetic aspects of, you know, the Russian artistic underground. It's interest in music, literature, and the visual arts in an attempt to sort of bring all these different platforms together into what might be understood as a kind of Gesamtkunstwerk, a complete work of art, but without necessarily the, uh, the political connotations of Wag uh, Richard Wagner's uh, project of uh, total work of art. But um, there is this kind of very interesting eclectic aspect to what the Mitki do. And it's, it looks back to the Russian uh, artistic practices of the distant past without being at all nostalgic. And I know here I'm going to catch some fire from some people because uh, you know there are many people who look at the work of the Mitki and they say, well, this is fundamentally nostalgia. But I think for one thing, the nostalgia is if, or this sort of uh, interest in the past is too ambiguous to sort of take the place of a kind of uninflected yearning for it. So, um, you know, nostalgia tends to be kind of rich within its own bubble 
but doesn't is not really interested in bringing past and present and you know together in a in a fruitful dialogic way. The Mitki are very much interested in doing something like that. So to answer your question about how I got interested, I was of course you know I had already you know written on Russian literary criticism. My first book was on Mikhail Bakhtin. My second book was uh, you know on uh, Tchaikovsky. And um, subsequently, I did you know a series of articles about LGBTQ in Russia, and um, you know sort of the the underground arts, and the Mitki, uh, you know, when I first found out about them, it seemed to me that they represented a kind of of node in the culture where all these different threads or tendrils were sort of coming together, um, and they were doing making a deliberate effort in some sense at a kind of a synthesis of different aspects of Russian underground culture that usually, you know, are kind of far flung and not necessarily directly connected to each other. Um, you know, I found out about them, as I indicated in the book, you know, just by chance, I was in Moscow, it was 1997. And I was traveling uh, to St. Petersburg, as it happened. And you know, I had some time to kill before my train left, and uh, you know, and I, you know, ran across, uh, you know, in this kiosk outside, they were selling some pirated, you know, musical recordings, and um, and my eye was caught by the cover of this cassette, uh, audio cassette of the Mitki, and I had never heard of them before, and uh, I thought to myself, wow, this is really interesting. You have these formerly, uh, you know underground musicians from Leningrad in the 80s, uh, singing these Soviet patriotic songs and some Russian uh, urban folk songs from the late 19th century. This, you know, this sounds very interesting. And so, um, you know, I sat down and listened to it. And I was really struck, you know, by how what a, you know, strange and oddly cheerful project this was, at a time when Russian culture, uh, then and now, then, as now, uh, was not in a particularly happy place. So, um, yeah, that's, I, I would say that that pretty much sums it up, you know, in terms of my initial interest. I want to, I want to get into have you paint the picture of the cultural context in which they arise. But before we did that, so, so who were and what are the Mitki? Well, the Mitki were primarily um, a group, an informal group of underground painters non-so-called non-conformist painters in Leningrad in the 1980s and late 1970s. The name stuck only in 1984, uh, but one can argue that the group already was in existence from perhaps as early as 1979. Uh, some people have even said 1977. The artists knew each other, or most of them knew each other. Uh, and they were... Um, underground painters, most of whom went through the Mukhin uh, school of decorative and, and graphic arts, which was a little bit more offbeat. And, uh, you know, although it was an official institution, it had links to the Leningrad artistic underground of the 50s and 60s, which wasn't necessarily the case with the Repin Academy of Art, which was sort of like the more official uh, and more well-known uh, school of decorative and uh, decorative and uh, and graphic arts in Leningrad. So they all, so they 
essentially came from a place that had to do with uh, you know traditional media in painting and drawing, uh, but with these unusual primitivist subjects and styles that were brought to bear upon the Soviet reality of the 1980s. And this was completely new. Um, you know, there was a strong element of surrealism in a lot of the underground arts uh, in, in painters, among painters who were, you know, sort of unofficial painters in Leningrad in the 1980s. But many of those had this kind of uh, less well-defined identity uh, and often were very derivative of certain Western trends, in particular uh, surrealism. But the Mitki were trying to sort of fashion an approach and a, a visual and narrative style within their paintings that was uh, distinctly Russian primitivist and goes back arguably uh, as far as the 18th century with these uh, woodblock prints known as the Lubki, which were kind of like, you know, the equivalent of, you know, satirical tabloid journalism. And one could, we could, one could almost say that uh, the, the Lubki were the equivalent of uh, Charlie Hebdo in 18th century <laughs> Russian popular culture. So the Mitki were trying to extend and fill out that tradition, it seems to me. Yeah, you refer to them as, and it's interesting, and and, and they, the name itself is a derivative of Dmitri. And is it after, in the main kind of, uh, I don't know what to say, the the head of the group or the unofficial head of the group is uh, Dmitri Shagin. So, and, and it looks like in some of the art too, particularly one you reproduced, uh, uh, one of the woodcuts of uh, Brezhnev being fitted to go to uh, Afghanistan, they have this particular look of... Um, you know, I, of course, thought they looked like, you know, Slavoj Žižek, but yeah. <laughs> that's a later thing, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, which I think maybe, actually may fits. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe it was a an anticipation of uh, a dialectical uh, sort of a, a foreglimmering of uh, <laughs> right. Slavoj Žižek, yes. <laughs> right, anyway. but they, they have this, you know, kind of, they have the, sail, the, the, the symbol of, or their kind of uniform of sorts is the sailor shirt and bearded, I mean, Shagin looks like this. Um, so, so talk about uh, Shagan and his his place as kind of like the, you know, the the main um, brand of sorts of of this group. Well, uh, Shagan, the, the the interesting thing about the formation of the movement and really, you know, th from the mid '80s, I would say, to um, the late '90s, which is at the point at which the group begins to become a little bit more diffuse, and um, and it disperses itself in different directions, is that Shagin is the mascot of the movement. Mm, right, the, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, he is, uh, there are different ways of sort of phrasing this, I think. He's the mascot of the movement. He's the guardian angel of the movement. He is the figurehead for the movement. He is the inspiration for the movement. He is the emblem of the movement. But in no way is or was he ever the leader of the movement. In fact, there is no leader of the movement. <laughs> this is the interesting thing about the, uh, the entire identity of the group, that it's by coining that term, which seems to suggest that every member of the group is, you know, in this almost Deleuzian way, a, rep a replication of the leader or of something else in the culture, 
and a kind of a, just a sort of a, you know, a transistor within this power grid of, uh, you know, of relations, far from being something like that, uh, really, you just have, if anything, the actual life of the group as is presented, as each artist uh, does her or his own thing, those identities are so um, refulgent, so distinct, so idiosyncratic, that you see that it's a movement of non-conformity amongst themselves. And so the, 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 the name Mitki, named after this person who was kind of their inspiration, is really a, it stands in sort of ironic counterpoint to what they're actually doing. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing I'd like to very quickly say about Dmitry Shagin is that, you know, a very talented writer and I think, uh, a, you know, a pretty interesting poet in his own right. He writes, a, you know, or he wrote light verse, which I, I the closest comparison I can make would be, uh, uh, you know, Edward Lear in, in Russian, you know, kind of, you know, very limerick-like, highly melodic uh, short poems. Um, is that Shagin represents a kind of a mythic image or archetype of the seemingly adulpated, but ultimately very, very shrewd fool figure, you know, who knows what's going on, but, you know, plays at being somebody who is disconnected and unaware of things. But of course he isn't. This is all a kind of a very uh, knowing strategy. Would you say that as a figure, as a representation, as a mascot, does he hearken back to like the holy fool? Absolutely. Sorts? There's no question. He, 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 I think that there are two, there are two sources here within Russian culture itself. There's the figure of the holy fool who, I mean, in a way, um, the English term holy fool is very, uh, misleading in terms of, you know, the Russian tradition of what's called Yurodstva or Yurodove, uh, because it doesn't suggest the Russian terms suggest a kind of non-normativity, but not necessarily, uh, and perhaps some aberrant behavior, but nothing that could be necessarily understood as foolish or pathetic. You know, in fact, you know, the you know, holy fools were kind of revered figures. I mean, they were sort of, some of them were actually celebrities in their own right uh, in pre-revolutionary Russia. So that's one source for, for the Mitki and for Shagin. The other source, it seems to me, is uh, more folkloric and less distinctly religious or Christian, and that's the figure of Ivan Durachok, uh, you know, even Ivan or Ivan the Fool, which is a big part of Russian folklore. Again, you know, a figure who seems to be very, you know, kind of simple-minded, but actually is surprisingly resourceful and more aware of his environment that he leads on. You know, the, I think that the closest equivalent to Ivan Durachok in, you know, uh, some other, you know, folkloric traditions, the one that sort of most readily springs to my mind is uh, Br'er Rabbit in African-American folklore, you know. So, uh, so, you know, those are the kind of the two points, uh, archetypal points of orientation as far as the figure of, of Dmitry Shagin, Mitya, is concerned. And I, and I should just hasten, 
I'd like to you know simply add here that this is these are personae, and as personae, they're cultivated. They're works of art themselves in a certain sense, in a kind of a performative uh, manifestation, and they're constructs. You know, and none of this has necessarily anything to do with the actual person of Dmitri Shagin. <laughs> so you know, there's nothing about him that is simplistic. Uh, or crude, or adulpated, or you know, resembling in any specific way the behavior of the holy fools Yurodivya of old. But you know, I think that he, in some sense he and other members of the group, such as Vladimir Shinkaryov, are interested in these paradigms and they played with them within their own paintings and writing. So. Give uh, more of a description of the the context of of the the mid and early to mid nineteen eighties within art and culture in which the Miki emerged because they're also connected with you know emerging rock music in in Leningrad uh, and other kind of underground art and and expression. So uh, so give a, a description of that that context. Well, it's uh it's a highly unusual and kind of chaotic context because people were simply. People knew that you know um, there was. They didn't. They of course did not know that the Soviet Union was going to you know collapse or fall, but they knew that there you know that they were living in a certain kind of ends. I would say end of days of a particular cultural order, which doesn't mean that they thought the Soviet Union itself would fall, but you know that it, it would. You know that life was you know clearly changing. Things were not as they were before certain assumptions about what are what is art you know and what you can do within the realm of art and have it openly uh you know promulgated among people all of that began to very rapidly change i should also point out that you know it was the first official or well, i shouldn't say official but the first actual print edition of uh the so-called bible of the movement which is simply called mitki and it was written by vladimir shinkaryov that actually came out before the fall of the Soviet Union. It came out in early 1990, and um, you know segments of you know people already knew about the movement pretty well through Samizdat, but um, you know a lot of things that would not have been published certainly even in 1987 were already being kind of you know percolating to the surface of the of you know of journals and book publications. So people were basically, they were seeing what would fly, seeing what could get exhibited, seeing what could get published, uh, and basically brainstorming, it seems to me, on canvas and on page. And so the Bitki emerged, the, the context at Leningrad was distinctly different, it seems to me, from the one uh, that was contemporary with what was going on in Moscow. Moscow, um, the artistic groups tended to be more conceptual. They were more uh, openly interested in bringing together various genres within a single, say, installation space. Uh, they were more interested in kind of art as performance in the sense that actions would be staged and that would be understood as a form of visual art in itself or a kind of a extension uh, from the constrictions of canvas and the constrictions of a you know of a of, of a lithograph page 
all of that seems somehow from the Mos from the point of view of say the Moscow conceptualists that seems somehow too limiting. Uh, St. Petersburg was a little bit different. The artists were experimental, but they were more they were more comfortable or didn't find any particular difficulty in working within traditional genres. They simply pushed the style of those genres to the extreme. Uh, and a, a representative example of this is the so-called New Academicians uh, in St. Petersburg, which was a movement of essentially collage artists and oil painters uh, who were working under and together with uh, Timur Novikov, who was sort of a remarkable you know, figure in and of his own right. And uh, Novikov was actually very friendly with you know, members of the Mitki uh, in the late 80s. And so there was a sense of taking these traditional forms and uh, exaggerating them in stylistic terms. This was their approach. So take, for example, primitive, primitivism and make it more self-consciously, more palpably, even more uncomfortably, preeminently primitivist. So you didn't find necessarily these kind of border crossings between styles. You had, there was a sense of, okay, here are our raw materials. Let's hone them as much as we possibly can and see what happens. Um, so it seems to me that the Mitki emerged very clearly from that, um, from that general context of what I would call a kind of love of traditional culture understood in an untraditional way. This collaboration between within the Mitki and, and between its two kind of principal figures, uh, Shagin on the one hand and and Shikharov, um, you, you compare them to their their kind of collaborative relationship to uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones. Talk about the collaborative relationship between Shagin and Shikharov within the Mitki. The, the the segment of the book, my book, where I treat this most uh, you know, specifically, uh, you know, I um, I I term it this way: the creation of Dmitri Shagin in the work of Vladimir Shinkaryov. Uh, you know, the the title is also you know includes the phrase you know glimmer twins of the Russian of the Leningrad underground. Uh, glimmer twins, of course, is is a, is a turn of phrase that was used to describe you know Mick Jagger and Keith Richards within the Stones. You know, during the period that Andrew Lugo Oldham was their main producer, whom they despised, from what I understand, uh, because he was such a fuddy-duddy and wanted them to make them into a sort of a traditional uh, pop group. So when I came up with, the with that title of the chapter, I meant two things. The creation of, Dimit of Shagin in the work of Shinkaryov, in the sense that Shinkaryov uses the work of Shagin himself in his in that book written by Shinkaryov, the, the book uh, Mitki. What I mean here is, is, is two things. One, he quotes from Shagin's uh, light verse. Uh, so you already have samples of Shagin's artistic creation there in that sense. Also, the early edition, at least one early edition, Samizdat-era edition of the book, has illustrations by Shinkaryov, a few of them done in the style of Dmitri Shagin. 
So what you have in the book, you know, the, the first book about the movement is really a sense of, okay, what we're doing here is we're talking about how our movement uh, operates, how, what sort of relations we have amongst ourselves, to what extent can you consider us a commune or a collective? And then last, we want to use this book, or this is what Shinkaryov is basically telling us, it seems to me, I'm using this book as a kind of a frame for the, the interesting emblematic work of our mascot, Dmitry Shagin. So, so there's no question that, you know, um, he's kind of taking, assimilating, retrofitting, call it what you will, the work of this other artist in his own work. And all of this makes, you know, this is also deeply consonant and harmonious with the ideals of the group itself, which have, which, you know, um, have to do with the glories of collectivism, but not in the Soviet sense. Rather, the sense of an artistic movement as a kind of collaborative or studio. Uh, one can almost think of it as, you know, what seems that Andy Warhol had in mind with his own studio, you know, the factory, uh, that he would bring together these, you know, different artists and musicians, you know, in his case, a few of his colleagues in the art world and gallery owners, and together with, say, the, you know, Lou Reed, the Velvet Underground, John Cale, Nico, and so on, and see what happens. Except here you have, it's more radically decentered than anything in Warhol's factory. I mean, ultimately, Warhol was a kind of a demiurge of it all, and he he was like a magus figure, and without him, it would have definitely fallen apart. But here you do have a sense of people who have, they have an almost gut level understanding of their work is complementing each other. And so uh, what Shinkaryov does is bring the work of this one artist and uses parts of it for his own work. Uh, one can say that that's a certain kind of plagiarism. Uh, I don't think so, given the fact that he says, well, this is this work is by Dmitry Shagin. But it, it does, you know, illustrate the extent to which uh, there is no such thing as unitary authorship. So that's one thing. The other aspect of this, um, you know, the creation of Dmitry Shagin in uh, the work of Shinkaryov is that the figure of Shagin as a character in that book is a creation of Vladimir Shinkaryov. I understand that book as really essentially a novel. And you could understand the figure of Dmitry Shagin as a kind of I don't know, protagonist, you know, flawed protagonist, interesting individual uh, who goes through a kind of what we might call, you know, process of education, you know, uh, you know, it's a kind of, it's a Bildungsroman in a certain sense. And so, so, the, so there's, all, there's all that, but together with that, you know, working in this sense, this idea of creation in both senses, the work of another artist and the fashioning of the character of that artist in your own book this brings us to the whole dynamic between you know jagger and richards you know in the, in the history of the stones where you know it's not always clear who did what for example uh, who contributed you know i think that the division of labor was even murkier than in other sort of renowned um, 
songwriting duos uh, in rock history. You know, I think Lennon and, um, and McCartney, you can actually tell quite clearly, uh, especially in the, the post-help recordings, you can tell quite clearly who is mostly responsible for this or that song. The whole legacy of that in Jagger and Richards' music is, the thing is, there's a sense of collaboration and also blurring of identities. And that's, that paradigm I found very, very interesting and very useful for understanding the Mitki. Uh, you know, the Stones were always, of course, like kind of the, the gods of the Western rock pantheon for uh, Soviet-era rock musicians were, of course, the Beatles. But you know, the Stones did play also a certain role. And also, I would say that they were a little bit more well-known and more popular in Leningrad than in, say, Moscow and uh, the city of Gorky and some other places. Uh, this might have been partly to do with the proximity to, to some of the ports. I don't know. But, you know, you do get the sense, for example, that a group like Aquarium, uh, you know, Boris Gribinshikov in, in Leningrad, his palette of influences from Western rock music is just much bigger uh, than simply, like, say, the different colors of the Beatles' multiple phases, you know. So it seems to me that, that kind of competitive, tense, and yet thoroughly interactive and interpolative partnership, that works very well with understanding a lot about the uh, the identity formation of the Mitki. Another thing, and, and I mentioned this already before, there with the with the the, the, the dress of the mascot, um, with this emphasis on on um, the mythology of the navy and the Russian navy. Um, so the, you, another thing you address is is the issue of masculinity for the figure of the Mitki Shagan. So talk, talk about the, the role of masculinity within the Mitki's mythology. Well, this is uh, something that it struck me. I think it was maybe the second thing that struck me about the group or the third thing, you know, the first being like, you know, the, the paintings that I saw, in particular, the cover of this, you know, um, pirated, rec pirated recording that I bought. Uh, and uh, the other thing being, you know, the uh, eclectic composition of the group. And the third was, you know, really this sort of very interesting and unusual presentation of gender identity which it seemed to me was highly unusual for you know a russian literary context uh you know of course you have artistic groups you know in the history of the you know the russian avant-garde in particular where women and men collaborate and you only have a couple of members of the mitki who are women you know it's mostly men uh, however what is very unexpected there are two things that are unexpected. First is the odd passivity and non-normative masculinity of the male figures within the work of the Mitki. I'm not talking about them on a personal level, uh, really, uh, but in terms of their the presentation of their personae through their art and through their writing. So, you know, the sort of odd passivity, I would really also say pa pacifism of the men who are dressed like sailors. This, this is a, a rhetorically something that is very tricky to pull off. And in a certain sense, they don't try to pull it off. 
they simply are, if anything, drawing our attentions to the irreconcilable contradiction of this, you know, combination of character traits. So there's that. But the other thing, of course, is that you have one member of the group who's a woman who plays a disproportionate role in the identity of the of the you know the group identity. And this is, is this Olga Florinsky. This is Olga Florinskaya, who's a, a she and you know and her partner husband Alexander are terrific artists in their own right, as is their daughter Katya. But the the figure of Olga takes on the role of a female patroness or guardian angel, uh, older sister for the male members of the group. But she's in no way a kind of enabling pacifist, you know, uh, enabling passive role. Uh, there is an interest in the highly eclectic um, media profile of her own artwork, which is painting, drawing, and Matisse-influenced collages, and the sense of her as being this almost protean figure, you know, almost like the eternal feminine. Now, of course, you know, in many, you know, sort of male-dominated contexts, you know, the interest in the archetype of the eternal feminine is at the same time a worship of women and a kind of, you know, sexist pigeonholing of them. Uh, but uh, you know, but the figure of Olga Farenskaya within the, the group mythology is, is nothing like that, actually. Uh, the other members of the group are interested in her artistic productivity, the eclecticism of her style, and the way in which you know, she embodies certain values of sociality. So I found you know, this kind of playing with gender ambiguity or the sort of the constructs of gender to be absolutely fascinating. And as more than one Russian friend of mine pointed out as I was describing you know, this project at its very early phases, and you know, in giving early versions of it at conferences, at you know, universities, many Russian friends pointed out, well, this is, you know, runs distinctly against the machismo that you see in certain corners of contemporary Russian culture, and which one can trace in some ways it could be argued to the 17th century with this manual called Damastroy, which is basically a kind of how-to book for male heads of households, which includes information also about, you know, physically abusing your spouses. It seems to me, and as, you know, some Russian colleagues and friends have pointed out, listening to my early expositions of this project, that the Mitki are kind of opposing that. They're running up against that sort of cultural norm. And we look at the moment we're living in now, and really actually all, arguably from the mid-90s to the present, what you see in you know, Russian models of masculinity is really a kind of a resurgence of you know, this sort of unapologetically abusive model. So both then and now, you know, what you see in the Mitki is a kind of a rejection, an implicit rejection of those values, it seems to me. But but at the same time, one of the things that's central to the, the art collective is a, as a sociability, a, a, a very male-centered sociability around alcohol consumption and alcoholism. And so how does, how does alcohol fit into the collective's work and also just daily life? 
you're right to point out that the consumption of alcohol uh, as presented in the work of the Mitki is framed as a what uh, the LGBTQ scholar uh, Eve Kosovsky Sedgwick describes as a homosocial activity, which is not the same as homosexual. Right? It simply means a kind of a, a bond among men, usually around a particular activity or, say, organization of power that has resonant affective dimensions. So that's true. And interestingly, what you also find in the sort of the narrative about alcoholism within the group, both in its paintings and in its writings, is a kind of exclusion of women from the activity of dipsomania or alcoholism, uh, bibulousness, call it what you will. But what's interesting is that this too is a part of the mythology, however. And there is a sense, I mentioned earlier, the treatment of Dmitry Shagin as a character within the writing of Vladimir Shinkaryov as undergoing a kind of development or education. You know, it's a kind of a, you know, he's a character, like a protagonist in a Bildungsroman. And it's almost as if it's a novel of education, but instead of it being in an actual school, it's, you know, as a result of the school of the hard, the hard knocks of life, you know, and as if life is out there, like it's a kind of a, a carpenter's plane. And what it does is over time, it sort of smooths off the, the rough edges you know, of the person who's passing through its corridor. Uh, so you can view the, you know, the alcoholism as partly through that lens. And what I mean by this is the following. The alcoholism is a, it's a creative force. It's something that cements relations, but ultimately it's, it's a glue that cannot last. It, it, alcoholism is a kind of a simulacrum, uh, as Jean Baudrillard might put it, of sociality. It is not sociality itself. So what you find is interesting in this kind of whole description of climbing onto the wagon, quitting, not drinking anymore, and realizing that you can still be productive even though you don't drink. And so, so there's a sense of the movement has as a part of its mythology, the idea of its evolution, its really development in, into different directions that were directions that were un, unanticipated at the, its very formation, you know. So alcoholism becomes a kind of, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor, one might say, of ideological hubris. People can get drunk on sort of ideas of power. Uh, they can get drunk on political philosophies that are not morally helpful. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so the, you know, the characterization of their, you know, joining sobriety movements then becomes a kind of a more knowing way of looking at themselves and the culture from which they emerged. So how does the, the Mitki movement uh, weather the collapse of the Soviet Union? Well, they actually weather it just fine. They, uh, this is the interesting thing. I mean, the heyday of their movement is precisely on you know, five years on either side of the Soviet collapse. So it's like basically from 1986 to 1996. And so this was their heyday, really. 
And so, you know, what began in, in the years preceding the Soviet Union was a kind of interest, really a sort of a euphoria of the possibility of expression, you know, and sort of un, like a kind of, you know, it's the sort of people were giddy with, you know, the possibility of disinhibition and experimentation. What you have following the collapse of the Soviet Union is a sense in which people are trying to figure out what is the new culture that they're living in. And it turns out that the years immediately preceding and immediately following the Soviet Union, as different as they were in, in many ways politically, what they have in common is people having a sense of living in a kind of a floating world where they, they, they have you know, a, a very strong, good I idea of who they are as individuals and what their values are, which they've culted, cultivated their entire lives away from kind of the much of the very boring cultural mainstream of the Soviet Union. So when the Soviet Union is collapsing, when it's clearly you know, beginning to fly apart at the seams, that kind of experience of sort of maintaining a private sphere, it serves them in good stead. And, it's, and it serves, and that it's a transition that works very well into um, you know, the first years of the Russian Federation. The emphasis is a little different. In the years immediately following the Soviet collapse, what the Mitki are doing is trying to assess the meaning of this collapse. And what did all those years living in the Soviet Union with its system of values, what did they mean? What can we recover from them? And how might they be sort of inserted into the present that we're still trying to figure out. So it was a kind of a search, uh, you know, they've already, last years of the Soviet Union, the Mitki established their own identity. What they're trying to do in the years following the Soviet Union is to catalyze a conversation about the larger identity of the, the Confederation of Independent States and the fledgling Russian Federation. And finally, um... How do you place the Mitki within protest as such? And, and how do you see their influence in, in Russia today? Well, um, they are not first, in, you know, although protest is in the title of my book, I never make claims that they are a, pro, a, a protest movement. Uh, I think this is a very important distinction. But they do represent a kind of aesthetic of postmodern critique, I would put it this way. And any critique within a social and political order that is authoritarian, any critique will be will be perceived as an act of protest of some kind, or it will be perceived as being resonant with acts of protest. The Bitki are interested in in presenting sort of transactions. I would put them this way. Uh, with the larger culture that are adverse, somewhat adversarial or gently subversive in relation to that larger culture. So the, one example I can give is in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, they came out with their own newspaper, which is called Mitki Gazeta. And what you see there is uh, you know, an absolutely fascinating uh, and very self-conscious attempt to create 
a newspaper that is proud of existing in its own uh, bubble outside of you know the larger norms of the culture. There's a kind of a celebration of eccentricity, um, sort of incomprehensible behavior, even sometimes unsocial behavior. For example, one of the issues of the mag of the newspaper had a, as its cover a picture of the a very talented Russian Jewish poet uh, Alek Grigoryev, completely soused. You know, I mean, you know, quite clearly, like very, very drunk and sort of, you know, looking at eyeing the, you know, the camera lens with this sort of deranged expression. There was a sense of we might have heroes, we might have very talented people among us, but we are not going to idealize ourselves. Uh, there, what I see in, 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 in gestures like this and sort of uh, aesthetic, aesthetic and branding choices like this is a play with certain aspects of anarchism. And the, the Mitki are really, you know, one can see them as being belonging to a very strong and old Russian tradition of embodying what we might term libertarian socialist values. Uh, I mean, libertarian is a term that's been kind of hijacked, you know, uh, in all sorts of ways the last few years. Uh, but here, uh, this is, I'm using this as a turn of phrase that comes from the Russian Jewish American historian Paul Avrik in his book about uh, the Kronstadt Rebellion uh, in 1921. And, you know, he said that, well, these Russian sailors, I mean, uh, you know, they were interested basically in a kind of libertarian socialism. They had socialist values among, amongst themselves and broadly speaking through the society at large, but they weren't interested in the idea of a socialist state as such. So you have to imagine it almost as a kind of, of loose network of, of uh, amicable communes. This is the you think of the term anarchist, you think of the term, terms such as anarchist and protest or even anarchist protest, you know, Black Lives Matter and so on, you know, and other related movements. What you are thinking of is, you know, kind of strong pushback. But I think what those movements embody at a deeper level is really a sense of uh, using, they use a different political language. And it's a language of that, that sort of, you know, is very interested in the grassroots and very interested in dispersed networks rather than kind of necessarily uh, nationwide movements with a strong centralized profile. The African-American activist Angela Davis had a very interesting way of phrasing this a couple of years ago. She said that uh, when we think of people like Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King Jr., we need to think less in terms of leaders and more in terms of, of figures who channel forces rather than guiding them. It seems to me that the Mitki are very interested in that kind of dynamic. And what we see in many of the protest movements in Russia over the last three, four years is really this kind of playfulness and this sort of verbal disinhibition, uh, which is, you know, while not directly influenced by the Mitki, although I think that in some cases there are a few that might be directly influenced by them, and particularly a Pussy Riot, uh, I think were directly influenced by the Mitki. But while 
not directly by the influence by the Mitki, there is a sense that the Mitki, in their sort of their presentation of their group identity, anticipated many aspects of this creative orality, is how I would put it. That was Alexander Mikhailovich, a professor emeritus of comparative literature and Russian at Hofstra University and visiting professor of Slavic studies at Brown University. His new book is The Meat Key, The Art of Postmodern Protest in Russia, published by University of Wisconsin Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Все регуляторы открою рычаг сильнее.